welcome to This Week in the History of Psychology for December 4th through 10th. This is your host, Christopher Green of York University in Toronto, Canada. In this episode, we'll first take a brief look at some of the most important events that happened during this week in psychology's past. Then we'll have our feature interview with Professor Ludy T. Benjamin Jr. of Texas A&M University on the history of psychology's pursuit of the elusive Nobel Prize. Finally, we'll celebrate the birthdays of some important psychologists. All this and more on this installment of This Week in the History of Psychology. for December 4th. In 1943, Allied bombing in World War II destroyed Wilhelm Wundt's original Leipzig Psychology Laboratory. Also on December 4th, in 1962, Martin T. Oren's article on the social psychology of the psychology experiment with particular reference to demand characteristics and their implications was published in The American Psychologist. And for December 5th, in 1913, the Psychoanalytic Review was first published. William Allenson White and Smith Eli Jelliff founded the journal, which was the first periodical in English devoted to psychoanalysis. Also on December 5th, in 1955, the drug Ritalin, or methylphenidate, was approved for use by the U.S. Food and Drug Administration. Although a mild stimulant, it has been widely used as a treatment for attention deficit hyperactivity disorder in children. For December 6th, in 1916, the New York Psychiatric Society appointed a committee on the activities of psychologists. The committee's later report urged the disapproval of the application of psychology to responsible clinical work except under the direct supervision of physicians. For December 7th, in 1894, James Mark Baldwin's book, Mental Development in the Child and the Race, was first published. And also on December 7th, in 1965, the journal Perception and Psychophysics, edited by Clifford T. Morgan, was first published by the Psychonomic Society. For December 8th, in 1966, Eleanor Maccabee's book, The Development of Sex Differences, was first published. For December 10th, in 1900, Carl Jung reported for duty at his first professional post at the Bergolzi Mental Hospital in Zurich, Switzerland. Also on December 10th, in 1963, Sir John C. Eccles, Alan L. Hodgkins, and Andrew F. Huxley were awarded the Nobel Prize for their studies of the physiology of nervous transmission. And also on December 10th, in 1973, Nobel Prizes were awarded to Conrad Lorenz, Carl von Frisch, and Nicholas Tunbergen for their ethological studies of animal behavior. As we just heard, and as I have reported in previous episodes, many people have won Nobel Prizes for work that is closely related to psychology. 
Psychologists themselves, however, have always found this most illustrious of all scientific prizes an elusive goal. Indeed, Daniel Kahneman's Nobel Prize for Economics in 2002 was the first ever won by an individual whose PhD was actually in psychology. Partly the problem is that there is no Nobel Prize for psychology, but that is only a portion of a complex historical situation. Here to talk to us today on the question of psychologists and the Nobel Prize is Ludi T. Benjamin, Jr. of Texas A&M University. Professor Benjamin is the author and editor of several textbooks on the history of psychology and also of the article Behavioral Science and the Nobel Prize, a History, which appeared in American Psychologist in 2003. Professor Benjamin, first could you tell us how you became interested in this particular topic and how you pursued it? I was in the uh, rare books and manuscript room in the Boston Public Library and I was there working in the Hugo Munsterberg papers on a, another project looking at some of Munsterberg's uh, work in the early psychology of business. And I came across uh, a letter, uh, a letter in 1915 from Munsterberg to the Nobel Medical Committee, uh, in which he nominated uh, Wilhelm Wundt for the Nobel Prize. And it was an interesting letter, a couple of pages, and I, uh, I guess it had never occurred to me that a psychologist that early in the days of the Nobel Prize might have been nominated. And it got me wondering uh, how Wundt fared in that competition in 1915 and whether he had been nominated at other times and uh, whether other psychologists uh, had been nominated. So uh, just uh, about the next year, I guess, the International Congress of Psychology was held in Stockholm and I had contacted the Nobel Archives hoping that I could extend my trip a little bit to Stockholm and work in the archives. But they were closed, as uh, Europeans uh, often do in the summer. Uh, so I went back the next year in the summer of 2001, back to Stockholm, and spent a week uh, working in the Karolinska Institute uh, Nobel Archives, which uh, is essentially responsible for the one prize, the prize in physiology or medicine. Well, now, I guess it's pretty widely known that Ivan Pavlov won a Nobel Prize in the physiology and medicine category in 1904. Uh, but entirely for his work on digestion. Um, he was later nominated several times for his uh, conditioning work, the work that's best known by psychologists, but uh, did not win. Is that right? That's correct. Yeah, in fact, I, I had wondered after um, reading about Wundt's nomination when I uh, arrived in Stockholm, I had uh, been speculating about who might or might not have been nominated, whose names I would find in the files, and, and Pavlov was one uh, one of the few that I guessed at uh, successfully. And indeed, he was nominated uh, three times in the 1920s and once in 1930, uh, and the nominations in each case were for the conditioning work. Uh, so had he won, that would have been his, uh, his second Nobel Prize. He didn't make it to what's called the final round. Uh, he did get a preliminary report, that's sort of a, a secondary stage. It's, it's difficult to characterize the, the there's a, a 50 year period of records that I looked at from 1901 essentially to 1950. So in looking at the the uh, procedures for that time, uh, you, you have people who are nominated and there's a very small committee of six to eight people who work through the, the, the mass of nominations uh, uh, to winnow those down to uh, say a half a dozen finalists. Uh, Pavlov never made it this time into that finalist category. Uh, but he did make the, the sort of the second stage, which is a preliminary report in, in one of the years 
but but he didn't uh, he didn't win. And there were uh, two other major figures uh, of early psychology who were nominated multiple times for the for the physiology prize, but did not win. Wilhelm Wundt, who you mentioned uh, at the beginning, and he was nominated uh, three times, and Sigmund Freud, who was nominated eleven times plus a twelfth for the literature prize. Um, could you tell us first about the case of Wundt? Uh, yes. Well, I mentioned that uh, there was the the letter from Munsterberg in in 1915, and one of the things that was uh, really interesting and a bit puzzling about that letter was uh, it was a curious time uh, to be making a nomination of uh, of a German, especially a, a one who was so nationalistic uh, in, in his uh, public uh, pronouncements about Germans. Uh, uh, Germany's righteous cause in, in World War One, so it would have been an extremely difficult uh, nomination to pull off successfully. And so I, one of the things I wondered is whether Wundt had been nominated at, at other times, uh, and it turned out uh, when I got to the archives and was able to look at the, the letters for each of the years, he had been nominated uh, twice earlier. Uh, I can't remember the years now, but uh, 1906, 1909, sometime in that range. And in both of those earlier two nominations, and there was only a uh, there was only a single letter in all three of his nominations. A, a number of the nominations, when you look, are clearly orchestrated. That is, somebody must uh, send out the word, "We're going to nominate so and so," and so the Nobel Committee receives ten letters, fifteen, twenty letters, uh, nominating the person. But in each of uh, Wundt's uh, three years of nomination, there was just a single letter, mm-hmm. and the first two were really quite short and not very meaningful in terms of their content, and he he didn't make it into any review round whatsoever. But in the 1915 review, he was selected as one of six finalists, and I, I'm guessing at the number of nominees that year, but uh, they were fairly consistent over the years, probably 30 to 40 nominees totally for that prize. One member of the of the subcommittee that, that worked on these would have been responsible for preparing the, the review, and the review was in excess of 30 pages and essentially reviewed his research contributions and, and publication contributions and concluded that uh, Wundt was not uh, appropriate for the medal uh, because uh, there was no singular discovery uh, that could be attributed uh, to his work. And so, yes, even though you could argue that he was the founder of this new field, which was often then known as physiological psychology, and certainly had nurtured it and was responsible for a number of the laboratories that had since sprung up, that he didn't meet the Nobel criterion of this, of this singular contribution. Uh, and it's also, uh, there's also some language in the, in the report that says they're not quite sure that psychology really fits within the, uh, within the domain of the medicine and physiology prize. And the committee, uh, none of the six nominees, finalists, uh, fared that well, uh, and they, they didn't award the prize. Oh, there was no prize given that year at all? No, no, no prize in medicine or physiology given. And, and that happened a couple of times during the war uh, across several of the prizes. Right. So that's what happened to Wundt, and he was never nominated again. Uh, Freud, uh, Freud's nominations are very interesting. Uh, he was, as you said, nominated 11 times for the uh, medicine or physiology prize and nominated once uh, for the literature prize, which my guess uh, is what infuriated him. He didn't consider his system literature. Uh, he was nominated by uh, uh, French Nobelist uh, Roland, uh, who, who won or earlier had won one of the literature prizes. Uh, so he was nominated 11 times for the um, uh, for the medicine or physiology prize. Some of those 
were single-letter nominations. Toward the end of his life, uh, people began to get together and provide multiple nominations. In fact, one year, I think, three of his letters came from previous uh, winners uh, in, uh, of that particular Nobel Prize. So there were a number of uh, people in Freud's corner trying to, to get him such an award. There are several times, uh, maybe three or four times in his letters, uh, where he mentions his awareness of the fact that he's been nominated for the prize. And in each case, he says he has no interest in winning the prize. He thinks uh, that it's a, sort of a political game and he doesn't want to play such politics. He also says in each case, I would love to have the money, mm-hmm. uh, but uh, but I don't really, uh, I'm not really uh, interested in the prize. Whether, uh, whether that was one of his defense mechanisms working <laughs> uh, uh, or not, I, I couldn't say. But uh, uh, in all of uh, Freud's nominations, he never made it into the final round at all. So we, never, we don't have any final reports uh, generated by the committee that would give us some kind of an assessment of his work. So we really don't know the reasons uh, for his rejection. One time he got a preliminary report, which is one of these five or six page short reports and that one uh, argues that he just uh, that, that, that the, uh, the accomplishments uh, do not merit the prize. Essentially most of the nominations were for psychoanalysis as method. Uh, that is that they didn't emphasize psychoanalysis as theory of personality or they didn't uh, talk about psychoanalysis as a method of treatment so much although that does appear in some of the letters. But the emphasis was on psychoanalysis as a, as a way to understand the mind. Uh, here is a new avenue that Freud has given us to explore the, uh, a methodology to explore the depths of the unconscious, which heretofore were largely unreachable by conventional methods. So that was the, the singular accomplishment that the letter writers, an understanding something of this no, unwritten Nobel rule uh, that, they were, that they were pushing uh, for in Freud's case. Right. Well, now, several other people whose work uh, was related to psychology have also been nominated. Um, I'll just go through some names here. Some of them have won, such as the neurologist Golgi and Ramoni Cajal and Sir Charles Sherrington, and even uh, Igas Monitz, uh, who has the dubious distinction of having invented the frontal leucotomy. Other nominees who have not won include Jacques Loeb, who was nominated 18 times, uh, Emil Kraepelin, uh, Vladimir Bekhterev, Walter Cannon, who was nominated 14 times, and even Carl Jung once. But no one won a Nobel Prize for explicitly behavioral research until 1973, when Carl von Frisch and Conrad Lorenz and Nico Tinbergen won for their ethological research. Do you think something had changed in the minds of the Nobel Committee members over the decades, such that they were willing, finally willing to recognize this sort of work in the 1970s? It's a very interesting question, and one I've thought about a lot on my own. Uh, I can't really give you much of an answer. Uh, a couple of things happened uh, that, that signal a change for the for the uh, awarding of the Nobels in 1973 to the uh, three ethologists, to uh, von Frisch, Lorenz, and Tinbergen. F- first of all, uh, there's a clear change in, in what I've been talking about several times now, this notion of a, of a singular accomplishment. If, if you read the uh, citations for those Nobel Prizes for those three men, uh, they are for a body of work. Uh, they are for uh, a series of studies that promote uh, the sort of ethological uh, tradition in, in biology and in animal behavior at the time. There had been earlier nominations, in fact, for that group. Eric von Holtz, for example, was one of the early ethologists, had been nominated as early as 1938. Mm-hmm. And oh, uh, von Frisch had been nominated uh, as well 
earlier, I can't remember the, the year now, but had been nominated um, much earlier than 1973. Uh, so it, it took, uh, obviously, a long time for the ethological work to be around before anybody decided that it was prize-worthy. What caused the change, I don't know. Certainly, Sherrington, after 24 years of being nominated, Charles Scott Sherrington, finally in 1934, won, won the uh, Nobel. And again, he, his Nobel was, was awarded largely for a body of work, so, as opposed to this singular accomplishment. So, so that criterion seems to have faded in importance. But uh, the 1973 awarding of the prize uh, suddenly says to the behavioral science community, the behavioral science is Nobel Prize worthy. And I think there, uh, well, I know from some of the literature and some I quote in this article, uh, letters from John Gaito, for example, from York University and, and McConnell at the University of Michigan. There were psychologists who then thought uh, the door has been opened and we'll start to see psychologists uh, win uh, their fair share of, of the Nobel Awards. But it wouldn't happen. Uh, in fact, uh, in the 1973, so 33 years ago now, uh, there's been only one other prize in medicine and physiology that seems pretty clearly for, for behavioral science work, and that's the Roger Sperry Prize in, uh, in 1981. So mm -hmm. uh, while, it, while it looked like uh, psychology or behavioral science had won a great victory, in getting the physiology and medicine folks at the Karolinska Institute to say, yes, uh, psychology is prize-worthy, behavioral science is prize-worthy, it didn't open any doors. Mm -hmm. Well, up, up to the 1980s then, work related to psychology tended to be recognized to the degree that it was at all in the physiology and medicine category. But since that time, there seems to have been a shift to the Nobel Economics Prize. Um, one of the fathers of artificial intelligence, uh, Herbert Simon, won in that category in 1978. And, and then more recently, the cognitive psychologist Daniel Kahneman won the Economics Prize in, in 2002. Right. But but the Economics Prize has a somewhat different history and status than the other prizes, yes? Uh, could you tell us it, something it, about that? It's a very interesting history. The, um, the prize was, was actually founded by the Central Bank of Sweden on their 300th anniversary, uh, which it was about 1971, so about 70 years after the first Nobels were awarded. The Nobel Prizes began in 1901. The Central Bank of Sweden uh, argues that they'll put up the money for a separate prize in economics and there's a lot of politics that goes on. There's a, the, the Nobel uh, institutions are quite reluctant to add a, add a sixth prize and something that Nobel himself had not set up. But, but uh, the, the, the money is good, and, uh, and so they, they offer to do this, but they, they put a couple of things um, on the table that make it clear that this is to be distinguished from the five original Nobel prizes. The first is the name of the prize. And, and the name of the prize is, is officially this, the Central Bank of Sweden Prize in Economic Sciences in Memory of Alfred Nobel. Mm -hmm. uh, and in the committee documents and in the Nobel ceremony, that's the name that's used. And it, and it clearly differentiates the, the name from the others. But, of course, the press and everyone else uh, just calls it the Nobel Prize in Economics and doesn't really make that kind of distinction. There actually have been attempts, a number of attempts now, to, to eliminate that prize. And when the Nobel celebrated their centennial in 2001, even some descendants of the Nobel family banded together with some others, including some former Nobel winners, who asked the committee to do away uh, with the Nobel Prize in Economics. So admitting social sciences to the club uh, has certainly irritated uh, some of the longer-standing fields within the, the, the Nobel stable. 
do you think that the that the uh, there's a prejudice against uh, social sciences here, or do you think that there are just some people who want to remain true to the letter, if you like, of of Nobel's memory? Well, I think both uh, both ideas are are, are uh, certainly plausible. Uh, one of the things that the Nobel family pointed out in this 2001 protest was that Nobel himself had written uh, about his disdain for economics. In, in that sense, individuals who'd like to be true to his will and to his original intent of the awards uh, would perhaps be against it. At the same time, I, I think you're right that there, there, there is a prejudice, as there has always been, I think, against the uh, behavioral and social sciences, uh, often called the soft sciences. In fact, Burton Feldman, a uh, historian of science who, who actually died just a couple of years ago, has written a, a very fine book on the, on the history of the Nobel Awards. And I'm, I'm quoting now, this is in the article, but I'm looking at it in front of me here. And he, he writes, by choosing only hard sciences for awards, Alfred Nobel did his future prizes a supreme favor. Uh, and he goes on to explain why physics and chemistry and uh, medicine and physiology are in the long run more important than contributions from the social and behavioral sciences. So what do you think then the prospects are for psychologists winning Nobel Prizes in the future? I think the, 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 the possibilities for contributions in the Nobel areas are actually quite strong. Uh, whether we'll qualify uh, uh, for the awards or not, I don't know. Uh, let me talk about two awards just briefly, the Economics Prize and the, uh, and the Physiology or Medicine Prize. Uh, you, you've said that, in fact, uh, Herb Simon, uh, uh, for his work in artificial intelligence, and Daniel Kahneman, uh, cognitive psychologist, uh, have, have now won the Economics Prize. And it can be easily argued that their work fits well within the domain of economics. Uh, there is, uh, in Sylvia Nasser's uh, biography of John Nash, the book A Beautiful Mind, which was made into a very successful movie uh, recently, which won the Oscars, I recall, for Best Picture. Mm -hmm. Uh, toward the end of that biography, she says that the that the Nobel Committee, uh, this is in economics, uh, actually has changed its. Uh, I'm, I'm reading now from again. This is from her book. The committee issued a report. This is in 1995, that essentially redefined the economics prize as a prize in social sciences, open to great contributions in fields like political science, psychology, and sociology. No public announcement of these far-reaching changes was made, but within a year, two social scientists who weren't economists, a statistician and a sociologist, were members of the prize committee. And so that, when I read that in her biography, I, it just jumped off the page at me. I thought, wow, this, this is an incredible, the, the economics committee has decided in secret to become a social sciences prize committee, and why wasn't this in my newspaper, and mm -hmm. why hasn't American Psychological Association told me about this? So I wrote to the heads of APA and uh, the American Psychological Society, as it was known at that time, and uh, to their executive officers, and it was news to them. They had never heard of it. So I, I, I did get in touch with Sylvia Nasser, and we talked about this, and she told me that her sources were unnamed, uh, but they were active committee members, who, and she had more than one who had told her the same story that the economics uh, uh committee had decided to broaden its scope to social sciences. Now, if, if that's true, and I, I don't guess we can know for sure that it is, although Kahneman's winning may suggest that, uh, that give it some additional credibility, mm -hmm. but it's the, um, given the history of that, of, of that prize and how much uh, flack it has taken over the years, that is the economics prize, 
I can't imagine that they would uh, that they would make such a public announcement because they're they're already under fire uh, as as uh, an economics prize. I think they would only open up the door to further criticisms uh, that might even lead to the end of the prize uh, potentially uh, were they to make that public. So well, our, one of our best chances then in psychology may be if that prize has been broadened and psychologists will be more competitive. The Madison or Physiology Prize, I think, is a, is a very interesting uh, arena now. Uh, I make mention in the article, if you look at the early prizes, the early prizes when it began in 1901 went to bacteriologists in lupus, in diphtheria, in tuberculosis. In fact, the leading killers in 1900, about the time the prizes are established, the leading killers in much of the Western world, at least, were, were tuberculosis, influenza, and pneumonia. And those are all bacterial and viral infections. Uh, if you look at the leading killers in the Western world today, those aren't at the top of the list. They're cancer and heart disease and stroke, all of which have huge behavioral uh, science components. Uh, high fat diets, uh, lack of exercise, smoking, uh, exposure to too much sun, mm-hmm. uh, stress, uh, so on and so on. So. The idea that behavioral science might make potentially significant contributions to issues of medicine and physiology, I think, are, 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 are quite highly possible for the 21st century. So maybe, uh, maybe we'll have some major breakthroughs in behavioral science that will have enormous impact on some of the disease processes, which will allow psychologists to be more competitive. All right. Well, thank you very much for this. We have been speaking with Ludy T. Benjamin, Jr. of Texas A&M University about psychologists and the Nobel Prize. Professor Benjamin is the author and editor of a number of textbooks on the history of psychology, such as A History of Psychology, Original Sources and Contemporary Research, published by McGraw-Hill, and A History of Psychology and Letters, the new edition of which is published by Blackwell, and From Seance to Science, A History of the Profession of Psychology in America. That's with uh, David B. Baker, who we heard earlier this year. Um, he's also the author of this article, Behavioral Science and the Nobel Prize, A History, which was published in 2003 in American Psychologist. A couple of other notes uh, pertaining to the interview. With Wilhelm Wundt's first two Nobel nominations were, in fact, in 1907 and 1909. And a couple of books were mentioned during the interview. One was uh, Burton Feldman's book, The Nobel Prize, A History of Genius, Controversy, and Prestige, which was published by Arcade in the year 2000, Um, and also Sylvia Nasser's book, A Beautiful Mind, The Life of Mathematical Genius and Nobel Laureate John Nash, which was published by Simon & Schuster in 1998, and of course was made into a major motion picture a few years after that. And now it's time for birthdays. On December 4th, in 1834, Carl Lange was born. Lange offered a theory of emotion similar in content to and contemporaneous with that of William James. Also on December 4th, in 1925, Albert Bandura was born. Bandura has made major contributions in moral development and observational learning. He will remain best known, however, for the Bobo doll studies. He was APA president in 1974. For December 5th, in 1901, Milton H. Erickson was born. Erickson was the best-known American practitioner of hypnotherapy in the 20th century. For December 7th, in 1895, Francis Cecil Sumner was born. Sumner was the first African-American to earn a PhD in psychology, and that was in 1920. 
Also on December 7th in 1910, Eleanor Jack Gibson was born. Gibson's work was in perceptual development and her visual cliff experiments are particularly well known. Another person born on December 7th, though in 1924, was Frank Joseph McGuigan. McGuigan wrote extensively about stress and tension control and covert language behavior. He was nominated twice for the Nobel Prize in Physiology. Also on December 7th in 1928, Noam Chomsky was born. Chomsky's transformational generative grammar represents a modern nativistic approach to thought and language. And finally, for December 8th, in 1928, Ulrich Neisser was born. Neisser has been a leader of modern cognitive psychology. His first book, Cognitive Psychology, in 1967, consolidated early findings in the field. And that's it, not only for this episode of This Week in the History of Psychology, but for an entire semester. We hope you've enjoyed the show all semester long. We will be taking a little break until the week beginning January 7th, at which time we'll begin with a whole new series of This Week in the History of Psychology shows. We would love to hear your comments on the show. You can email us at twithop, that's the initials of This Week in the History of Psychology, T-W-I-T-H-O-P, at yorku, Y-O-R-K-U, dot C-A. We would like to thank York University for hosting the program, as well as Michael Guimar for his technical assistance, and especially Warren Street and the American Psychological Association for their website today in the history of psychology, which we use for research and from which we sometimes quote directly. This Week in the History of Psychology is the sole property of Christopher Green. The opinions expressed on This Week in the History of Psychology are not necessarily those of Christopher Green or York University. 